This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Today on State of the World, Ukrainians determined to stay in their homes as the Russian assault reaches a grim anniversary. Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR. We bring you the day's most vital international stories up close where they are happening. It's Friday, February 23rd. I'm Christine Arismith. This weekend marks two years since Russia launched a full-scale war on Ukraine. The Biden administration announced 500 new sanctions against the Russian arms industry and other targets. These include individuals responsible for the incarceration of the late Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who died under mysterious circumstances. In a moment, we'll hear what Russians say about their country as it enters a third year of waging war. But first, to Ukraine, where millions have been displaced from their homes by the Russian assault, but where many others are determined to stay. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has this report from the city of Kharkiv. I am Maxim. Maxim Timchenko is seven years old. He's got big brown eyes and he's almost always laughing. He lives in a high-rise in Kharkiv with his parents and baby sister. And to understand Maxim, you need to know two things. He loves his hometown and he loves school. He's been learning English. As Maxim sings to us, he's interrupted. It's a sound he's very familiar with. Attention, air raid alert. That's an air raid sound, he says, and it's scary. What if the missile flies somewhere nearby and then explodes? Maxim says he hears explosions and air raid sirens all the time in Kharkiv, and he knows what to do. He drags out a fluffy mattress from the spare room into the hallway, which has no windows. And he crouches there, hugging a plush toy dog and his mother, Anna. When the attacks are more frequent, he sleeps out here. He feels safer that way. Thousands of school-age children like Maxim live in Kharkiv, a city about 20 miles west of the Russian border. Ukrainian schools are regularly hit by Russian missiles, so last year the city of Kharkiv opened classrooms in part of the subway system, which doubles as a bomb shelter. Maxim attends those classes twice a week. His mother says he looks forward to them. He's very friendly, very kind, and very emotional. He wants to hug everyone. He just loves it. The subway classes have proved so successful that Kharkiv made a radical choice to build entire subterranean schools. In a leafy neighborhood of apartment buildings, construction is nearly complete on one of those schools. It will house classes from kindergarten to 11th grade. 
Yevhen Pasenov is Kharkiv's Deputy Director for Housing and Communal Services. He guides us down dusty, unfinished steps. He doesn't tell us how far down for security reasons. It took about six months to design the school, he says, and we started construction last September. It will hold up to 900 students. Downstairs is a long corridor that seems to stretch on and on. On either side are dozens of classrooms. Hadakiv's mayor wants to open the school this spring, so the workers here are really busy. Some install lights, insulation, and wheelchair-accessible ramps. Others sand and drill. Olha Velmozhna is a local city administrator. She points to a large room. We plan to have a place with beds there, where the young children can take naps, she says. And each room will have a play area. And Pasenov adds that each classroom will be painted a different, bright color. He forces a smile, and then his face starts to darken. Our biggest challenge is to preserve our city and not let Russia destroy it, he says. But our children, they are losing a normal life. Kharkiv's mayor is Ihor Terefov. He wants to build eight more underground schools in the city. He's trying to raise money. Each school will cost more than a million dollars. We meet the mayor in a temporary office. He keeps moving around for security reasons to avoid being targeted by Russian strikes. Obviously, it's not a sign that life is good if we're building schools underground. As you can see, the Russians constantly shell us. Just the other day, an entire family was burned alive. An entire neighborhood was destroyed. About a million people live in Kharkiv. That's half of the pre-war population. Roughly 65,000 school-aged children are also here. Terehov says the underground schools can accommodate only about 9,000. Meanwhile, he says, the city is also planning to build an underground theater. Others have already gone underground. Like Serhii Jadan, a poet, novelist, and musician giving a concert here in his bunker. A Soviet-era bomb shelter under the university has also become a popular exhibition site. And a couple of local entrepreneurs drew up plans for small underground apartments. Plenty still happens in Kharkiv above ground, of course. Cars are on the road, vegetable markets are busy, restaurants and cafes are full, even if their windows are boarded up. Like, you can't find a place, even during the week in a cafe. Like, we can look around and there would be lots of people. So people are coming back. Maria Mezenseva is a member of parliament from Kharkiv. She spends her time off in her hometown, delivering humanitarian aid. Like, we can't accept the idea that we can give up. So the longer it goes, the more people get tired, of course. Back at the subway school, Maxim and his classmates sing a song about spring and hope. He sits with Ksenia, a classmate who is now his best friend. 
Their teacher, Ludmila Demchenko, says the children, too, are tired of this war. They ask, when will the Russians stop bothering us? The children just want to take a walk in the woods or to swim in a lake. That's impossible now. But, she says, they also like being home in their city. Teaching them underground is a way to keep them safe. Kharkiv is known as the center of education, so this is not a defeat. It's a way to continue something that should be continued. Only if we stop, will it be a defeat. Class ends and Maxim and Ksenia take the bus home together. He reads aloud to her from a book about biology. And when Maxim's back home, he's ready for the next air raid siren. But as he waits, he decides to sing his favorite song. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. We're marking the occasion of Russia's invasion of Ukraine two years ago. As the war grinds on, entering its third year, Russia outwardly projects confidence in the war's progress, and political repression ensures that that's the message at home as well. How then to get a sense of Russia's mood on this anniversary? NPR's Charles Maines found one way, perhaps, in a Moscow theme park. There are the official stories told about Russia, and then there are the stories Russians tell about themselves. Amid another year of war that saw hundreds of thousands killed and wounded, an armed rebellion in Russia's military ranks, and a crackdown on dissent at home, Russian President Vladimir Putin's message to his nation, Russia is not only surviving, it's thriving. The country is changing for the better, said Putin at a conference in Moscow this week. We're becoming more self-sufficient and more sovereign, adding it was now Russia's time. A new exhibit in Moscow, called simply Russia, or Russia, celebrates the best of the Putin era at 24 years and counting. Housed on the grounds of a park once dedicated to Soviet achievements in industry and agriculture, the new exhibit features tributes to present-day successes like the Sputnik V vaccine and Russia's new fleet of nuclear-powered icebreakers. There's also a massive pavilion dedicated to Russia's regions, the world's largest country housed in a free-to-the-public wonder cabinet of Siberian robots, stuffed polar bears, and did you know trivia on local history and culture. Galina Shabelkova, a pensioner visiting from Siberia, says she likes what she sees. Our Russia has begun to develop in the right way. It's more beautiful, more accessible than ever, says Shabelkova, and that's all thanks to our president. Walking the length of the pavilion offers a vicarious trip across the country, beginning with Ukraine's occupied territories. In a maca of a Donetsk coal mine, 22-year-old Anna Chichua tells me the story of her region's journey from oppression under Ukraine to its fight for independence and later reunification with Russia. There's also this. A six-foot rose sculpted from shrapnel, a symbol of the region's resolve. People often ask if we're happy to be with Russia, Chichu explains. I tell them that when Vladimir Putin recognized Donetsk, everyone had goosebumps. We'd finally gained our freedom. In September of 2022, at a ceremony at the Kremlin, 
Putin proclaimed Donetsk and three other Ukrainian regions part of the Russian Federation forever. Never mind that to this day, Russian forces don't have full control over the area or that the international community condemned the annexation as illegal. At a booth for the occupied Kherson region, local Alexander Shevchenko says that after watching territory shift hands repeatedly in the first year of the war, he now sees battle lines and hearts more hardened. Many people no longer talk with friends, brothers, sisters and family who ended up on the other side, he says. But that's only because Ukrainian propaganda makes contact impossible. Shevchenko says most have adapted to life under Russian rule, with its new tax codes, laws and Russian telephone numbers. It's the latest chapter in the region's long history. Life is always about change, he tells me. Those who aren't ready for change aren't ready for life. Next, our tour reaches Belgorod, a region bordering Ukraine and one of the few regions of Russia under regular attack. Artem Chistikov, a recent university graduate from Belgorod, reminds us it is largely American rockets that have rained down on his city the past year, just as he acknowledges the devastation Russia has meted out on Ukraine. First they hit us, and then we hit them, or the other way around. But there's always a response, he tells me. It's an endless cycle of revenge, and honestly, we're all tired of it. The exhibit is also a chance to swing through Chechnya, a republic renowned for its own past separatist wars and human rights abuses under its current Kremlin-backed leader, Ramzan Kadyrov. Yadiv Rizan, an official in the republic's agricultural ministry, says Chechen support for the war effort is unwavering, as is their pride in the battlefield achievements of Kadyrov's elite Ahmad special forces in Ukraine. People come from all over the country to train with Ahmad before heading off to Ukraine, he says. That includes former fighters from the Wagner Group. Rivzan told me most Wagner fighters joined Ahmad after Wagner was disbanded following a failed uprising by its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin against Russia's top brass last summer. Prigozhin died in a still unexplained plane crash just two months after the rebellion. We end our tour elsewhere in Moscow by talking about another mysterious death and another form of Russian power. Last weekend, police rounded up hundreds of mourners paying tribute to the late opposition leader Alexei Navalny, the circumstances of whose death last week in a remote Arctic prison remain unclear. 25-year-old Pavel Injutov says with Navalny's death, his belief in a brighter future for Russia has died as well. Who else can so clearly express the feelings of those of us who don't agree with Putin or the war, he says. We'd been talking in front of the Solovetsky Stone, a monument to victims of Soviet repression, in a small snow-covered park across from the headquarters of the old KGB. There are the official stories told about Russia, and then there are the stories Russians tell about themselves. It was late, and police looked on blankly, waiting for us to leave. Waiting so they could remove the flowers and tributes to Navalny, as they have done every night since his death, only to see them reappear the next day. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. That's the State of the World from NPR. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. The world is changing every hour, and catching up once or twice a day might not be enough. For quick updates throughout your day, there's the NPR News Now podcast. 
Every hour on the hour, we bring you up to speed on the latest news from around the world in five minutes. Listen now to the NPR News Now podcast from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR.